you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I encourage you to take it. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, as we continue to make our way through this book, we now begin a new chapter, Philippians chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be looking just at the first three verses. Paul really here opens up a a wide gamut of things here as he's talking about the goal of the Christian life. Uh, he's been sharing examples of what the Christian life is all about and, and giving some pretty, uh, some, some pretty stern things about how we are to live our life, some high expectations. And we've talked over and over before about how all of these expectations that Paul has laid out and the examples that he gives are not things that anyone can do in the flesh. They're not anything that anyone can do by their own human willpower or exuberance, but only be, can be done by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Anytime we seek to live out what God has commanded us to do, if we try to do it on our own, we will fail miserably every time. We must be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I would encourage you to take your Bible there. Let's stand together as we read these first three verses. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You can be seated this morning. So as he opens chapter 3, Paul is giving us this challenge of how we are to live out the Christian life. He, he's instructing the Philippian church, but we understand because we understand Scripture that this challenge is not just for them, but also for us as New Testament believers, that this is how we're to live out the Christian life. And I think all of us, if we are honest, we've, we've thought about this. We, we've read the Bible. We've read the New Testament. We see what the Scripture calls for us to do. And this is where the, the struggle comes sometimes. How do we live these things out? What is it God expects of us in this Christian life? The first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is the joy of Christian faith. The joy of Christian faith. Notice Paul begins there in verse 1 by saying, finally. Now, it seems as if Paul is beginning to draw an end to his letter, but we know that there's yet another chapter after chapter 3. Uh, but all of a sudden he says, finally, my brethren. And then the next verse, it seems that he takes a, a drastic turn and begins to address something that almost seems not related to verse 1. And so commentators are, are in disagreement on what's happening here, but really what some have suggested is that perhaps that while Paul was writing this letter, news came to him uh, of something that was happening there at the church at Philippi, and so he saw it prudent to stop for a moment and to address that. Uh, but I think also it could just be the fact that the, we see a man who in the flesh is writing a letter under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he's a man writing a letter, and as he's writing this letter, all of a sudden something pops into his mind. And just as it would be for you and I, if we were writing a letter to an individual and something came into our mind that we wanted to make sure that we addressed, we stopped for that moment and we address it. So Paul here is saying, finally, and he uses the same word in chapter four and verse eight, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and so on. So Paul here is just really trying to bring all things into conclusion. Some have pointed out that it's obvious that Paul was a preacher here because he says finally or in conclusion at a point which he has no intention of actually concluding. So we find Paul drawing things to an end. He wants to bring them all together because it's, it's like any time a teacher stands up in a classroom and begins to expound upon things, there comes a certain point where the teacher switches direction and says, okay, here's what we've learned today. Now, how do we apply this? How do we take this and make this applicable in your life? 
And this is what Paul is wanting to do for us. He's wanting to take these things and help us to apply them to our life. He talks about the brethren here. He says, finally, my brethren. He uses that word brethren to describe the church and he, how he views that collective relationship with them. Paul was an apostle. He was called by God. He'd been chosen by God there on the, the road to Damascus, knocked off of his horse, bright, shining light, Jesus speaking to him and calling him to follow after him and to serve him. And Paul was their pastor. He was one who had established their church, led many of them to faith in Christ. But above all, Paul saw them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't see them in a position of, he didn't see himself in a position of lofty authority, although he was not afraid to use that position when it was necessary. But all in all, Paul said, we are brothers in Christ. They are all engrafted and adopted into the same family, joint heirs with Jesus. And this familial brotherly love is something that we see commanded, necessary, and productive in the scripture. And so I wanted to pause for a moment to talk about this. We need to understand that as Christians, what we are called to do is have this brotherly love one for another. We're to care for one another. Remember, Jesus says that he commands this in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now listen to this. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What if you have love one for another? So Jesus is saying one of the most characterizing marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you love one another. And this is what we see Paul demonstrating here, that there is a love, a brotherly love, a sisterly love that comes from being inside the body of Christ. This brotherly kind of love is necessary because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that as the body is one and yet has many members and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit for the body is not one member, but many. So this brotherly love is commanded and necessary, but it's also productive for us. For it is through this brotherly kind of love that we can have the necessary conversations that we need to have to help one another grow in the Christian faith. As I said earlier, Paul was not afraid to confront those who needed confronting. He was not afraid to address the elephant in the room. He was not afraid to point out false teachers and sometimes to even chastise the churches for the things that they had done wrong and the wrong beliefs which they were holding to. And the reason that Paul could do this, and the reason that Paul did this was because he loved the brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason that the churches were so willing to accept Paul's criticisms and chastisements and and, and seasons was because they knew that he loved them and they also loved him. It's necessary in the Christian faith that we can do this so that we can be iron sharpening iron. It is always easier to hear hard truth from someone who we know and trust, someone who we know really loves and cares for us. A warning always rings stronger when it comes from someone who we know really has our best interest at heart. Paul says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you ought receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Paul was always having this mindset if he wanted to instruct the church on how to walk, instruct the church on how to live out their faith, and they were willing to do this because of this brotherly love. But I want you to notice here in this same passage the focus of this Christian joy that we talked about. Finally, my brethren, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Where, where are we supposed to focus in our life? He gets to the point rather quickly here. 
After he calls them brothers, he says, rejoice in the Lord. This is his first instruction he gives them here in this section. And such joy is that which is only known to Christians. And it's a joy that's found only in one place, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that true joy, Christian joy, cannot be known by those who are outside of Christ. They cannot know what it means to have this kind of joy in their life. We oftentimes talk about joy, but oftentimes what people are alluding to is more of happiness. They're not really talking about joy. They're talking about happiness and emotion that we feel for a certain circumstance or event that's happened. But Paul here is not talking about happiness. He's talking about joy. He's talking about living our Christian life in such a way of trust and reliance upon Christ. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. It is the character and temper of sincere Christians to rejoice in Christ Jesus. The more we take of the comfort of our religion, the more closely we shall cleave to it. The more we rejoice in Christ, the more willing we shall be to do and suffer for him, and the less danger we shall be in of being drawn away from him. We rejoice in Christ. We draw near to him. And the more we rejoice in, the Christ, in Christ and the more we are drawn to him, the less danger we find ourselves in. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by danger at every turn in this life. And I'm not talking necessarily about physical danger, but spiritual danger. There are temptations and things all around us. Satan is desiring that he would mislead or to cause us to fall into sin or to lead us astray. And we must draw near to Christ and we must rejoice in his joy. This is a common theme in Paul's writings. He actually uses it over 10 times just in this epistle alone. And it was no doubt a defining characteristic in his life. In the conclusion of this letter, he will write to the church of Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we've referred to that verse several times already as we've gone through this study because Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when we feel like it, not just when things are going our way. Because we really understand that Things had not really gone the way that Paul had wanted them to go at every single facet of his life. He had been in prison. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had been stoned. All of these things had happened to him. And at the end of it, Paul says, rejoice always in the Lord. Always find a reason to rejoice. When people love you, you rejoice. When people hate you, you rejoice. When people speak well of you, rejoice. When people talk bad about you, rejoice. Now, that's hard for us to comprehend as human beings. That when things are going badly, when things are not going the way we hoped that they would, that we would sit down and say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. But the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that we can understand this fact is that we can rejoice at all times. We can find the joy that comes to us only through Christ. Apparently, because of the number of times Paul mentions this in this letter, it was a needed encouragement for the believers at Philippi. But I think we can understand that this morning because who amongst us today hasn't felt seasons of our life where we have felt discouraged, where we felt anxious or feel fearful or worried about something? This was a commonplace in the church. He writes to the Corinthian church and says, finally, brethren, rejoice. He's given us this instruction to rejoice. Paul had learned this from hands-on experience. Paul was not just standing up and speaking of something which he did not know about. The foundation of this joy and of this teaching came from the scriptures itself, but it came because Paul had experienced it in every facet of his life. It's all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. Perhaps the most prolifically we see it in the Psalms. 
Psalm chapter 5, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt you in it. Be glad in the Lord, Psalm 32 says, and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 33, sing for joy in the Lord, all you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Psalm 100, which we just was just read just a little earlier. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. And you may say this morning, Pastor, well, you don't understand the circumstance that I'm in. You don't know what I've been going through. You don't know how it feels. And I may not. I don't know every person's circumstance immediately at this moment, but I do know this fact that the scripture tells us that no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances are, we can find and know the joy that comes from Christ. The church had seen Paul suffer persecution. They had watched him be falsely arrested, falsely accused, go to prison. They had encountered it themselves, but nevertheless, they could live their lives in joy. Paul here is not writing to a church where everything is going well for them. They are suffering persecution. They are enduring hardship. But yet in the midst of that, Paul says, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when things all go well. Rejoice always at all times. Remember what James tells us? Consider it joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's so counterintuitive to the world's mindset. The world would tell us that when things go our way, that we have a right and a privilege to be upset, that we have a right and a privilege to be discouraged and that we should have a pity party for ourselves, that we should just sit down and say, oh, woe is me. I can't believe that this would happen to me. I can't believe that I would have to go through this. James says, when we go through various trials, when we go through suffering and hardship, that we can know joy and to rejoice. Peter helps us to understand that God causes these things, allows these things, permits these things in our life to make us grow. He says in chapter one, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our trials, our disappointments, our hard seasons are not wasted in our life. God is trying us. He is refining us. He is shaping us more and more into the image of his son. And in the midst of that, he does not leave us alone. In the midst of that, he does not leave us without hope because he provides to us a joy that cannot be known outside of him. Because you see, brothers and sisters, joy is not a produced human emotion. Joy is not something that we produce and well up in inside of ourselves. It's not something that we cause to happen, but it comes from our observing and our response to, it's not something that comes from our observing and response to the past, present, and future circumstances, but our joy comes from the foundational trust in God's providence and power. As we look at what God does and we understand who he is, if we truly believe that, then we have great joy. If we truly believe that God is providential and that nothing happens by accident, we can rejoice because we know that he is doing a good thing, that he will work out for our good and for his glory. If we truly believe in God's power, 
then we can have joy because we know that there's nothing that Satan can do to us outside of God's permission. There are some denominations that give Satan way too much power and credit. Now, Satan is a powerful being. We're not not denying that fact. The scripture is very clear about that. But he is not more powerful than God. He does not have more authority than God. He cannot do anything outside of God's permissive will for him to do those things. So we can have joy in understanding that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father with all power and authority in heaven and on the earth, ruling and reigning at all times. This is not talking about happiness. It's interesting, the word happiness is related to the term happenstance. So just what happens, that's, that's really how our happiness is so futile. I and mean, it's just, we're happy one moment and sad the next because it's solely based on what is happening to us in the moment. But through our trust in God, our joy remains despite what we may be experiencing. Our happiness may be fleeting, but our joy remains secure. No matter how long or short the trial, we can live in Christian joy because nothing in this world can change the fact of who we are in Christ and the gift of joy that he has given to us as his children. Sometimes our trials are short seasons of life. We endure them and we go through them and we come out the other side, but sometimes God calls individuals to walk through long seasons of trial. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know who she is, who suffered an accident when she was young, paralyzed, has been in a wheelchair the entirety of her life. And she could have just sat down and said, well, well, that's it. I'm just going to get angry at God for allowing this to happen. I'm just going to get discouraged and I'm just going to just live my life in pursuit of what I want. But instead, she chose to find joy in her circumstances. I've shared with you before the story of my friend, David Rue who passed away several years ago. David had cerebral palsy. And when he was young, he could get around fairly decently, but had, had, had braces on his legs as a young man. And the older he got, the harder it was for him to walk. And any person who, most people when were in his circumstance would have just given up. I mean, it would take David literally 20 minutes to walk 20 feet across the room. But he rejoiced in the Lord. He found joy in Christ, and he lived out his life, even to the very end in his dying day, rejoicing that God had allowed him to walk through that circumstance because it gave him a better picture and reliance upon his Lord. The scriptures are very clear that in the midst of our hardest moments, that joy never leaves us. And Paul wants the church here to understand this because he knows what's going to happen to them. So he says to rejoice in the Lord. And maybe this morning you're thinking, well, how, how can I find that joy? Well, let me encourage you the next time you're tempted to say, where is my joy in the Lord? To think about these things. Here are some ways that we can rejoice in the Lord. Number one, we can rejoice in his salvation. We can rejoice in the fact that before the foundation of the world, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit set out the plan that they would redeem mankind. They said before anybody had ever existed, before there was mankind on the earth, we can rejoice in the fact that God put forth this plan. We can rejoice in the fact that before the foundation of the earth, God elected us unto himself and called us. We sit here in this room this morning, not based upon any good that we have done, not any merit that we exist before God, but solely because of God's sovereign electing power. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in the accomplishment of that salvation. The fact that Jesus came, born of a human being, lived among sinful men, lived a perfect life, and died upon the cross for our sins. We can rejoice in his resurrection 
because his resurrection points to the fact that God accepted the perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered to him. We can rejoice in Jesus's ascension to the right hand of God because he's seated in a position of power and authority. Brothers and sisters, we look at the world today and we see people in positions of power and authority, but their power and authority are nothing compared to the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. All the president has to do in a moment is just sign a document and something is, is, is cast. He can make an executive order and cause anything to happen. That's great power. That's great authority. But you know what the president can't do? He can't hold the earth in the palm of his hand. He can't hold the cosmos together. He can't cause the breath to go in and out of your body without you even thinking about it. We are made in the image of God, given a body that is so wonderfully and beautifully designed. And all of this is held together by Jesus sitting in that position of power and authority. We can rejoice in his intercession. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He is our great high priest. We can rejoice in His Holy Spirit that God the Father and God the Son have sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us, to convict us of sin, to draw us near to Christ, to empower us to live the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, these are just some of the ways that we can rejoice in the Lord. We could sit here all day and make a more exhaustive list, but there's always reasons that we can rejoice in the Lord. So we see this joy of the Christian faith. I want you to secondly notice the commitment of the apostle. Now, Paul is writing this letter, and notice what he says there at the end of verse 1. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. To write the same things. There's a repetition of teaching, because sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to hear the same things over and over again. Truth is truth, no matter how often we hear it. And as human beings in this sinful world, sometimes we need to hear the truth repeatedly in order for it to do the necessary work in our heart. We can hear it one time, and sometimes it doesn't seek in. Now, parents in the room, I, I, I would say that you know this very well, because children seem to have this same problem. You tell them one thing, and they seems to go in one ear and out the other, but as Christians, we can be just as guilty. And so Paul says, I have no trouble in writing these same things to you again. Now, there are three possibilities at hand here. Number one, he's referring to what he already wrote in this same letter in chapter one, where he referred to those who were uh, opponents. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Or secondly, he's referring to another letter that he had sent to them earlier, of which we have no record of. Or third, he's referring to things he had taught them while he was physically present with them. Now, we don't know. It could be a, a combination of all three, and really it doesn't matter which one it is. But what matters is, that what he's about to share with them is something of such great importance that it bared repeating again. Faithful Christian teachers will never tire of teaching God's word and shepherding his people, no matter how often they have to sometimes repeat the same exhortations, encouragements, and warnings. Really, honestly, if we evaluate the book of Philippians, we've seen Paul really do this already in this letter. Even without calling it out, he's repeated this same idea of joy, this same idea of trust, this same idea of faithful endurance and fight that is necessary for the Christian faith. Peter said in 2 Peter, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. 
And then again in verse, in chapter three of that same book, he says, this is now beloved, the second time I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It's important for us to be reminded of the faithful truth of God's word. It's important for us to be reminded of what God has called us to do. And so Paul says, it's no trouble for me to do this. Because why? Because he was a committed teacher. Paul didn't mind to do this. Paul had already told them in this letter, he says, I'm getting ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He says, I'm ready to do whatever it takes to ensure that your faith is made whole and to do whatever God calls me to do. If Paul was willing to follow his all in life or death, why would it bother him to reiterate some of the things which he had already taught them? Paul was a committed teacher. He was a faithful teacher. And the reason he said he was willing to do this, notice at the end of verse one, it says, it is a safeguard for you. Now, why would they need this? Paul said, it's, it's a safe measure for you. It's a protection for you. Now, those in the Philippian church were believers. Paul knew this. He had heard it with their own ears while he was there. He had seen some of them come to faith with his own eyes. He had seen their lives lived out in faith for Christ. But Paul was also aware of the scriptures that teach us that it is those who endure to the end who shall be saved. A profession of faith is not what saves someone. A morally pure life is not what saves someone. A person who has put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation is the one who has been truly saved. Paul understood that there would be some, like Jesus had taught in the parable of the soils, some who would spring up and appear to be a great growth, a great plant, a great convert, but then they would fall away because they had no depth of soil. The scriptures are replete with warnings that we are not to be misled about the reality of our faith. Paul would write to the church at Corinth and say, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Now, Paul here is not talking about the fact that someone can lose their salvation, but he's saying that we should always be mindful of the fact that there are those who have made professions of faith who have merely made it in the head and not in the heart. They've not solely put their faith and trust in Christ alone. They're holding a form of godliness, he would tell Timothy, and but they have denied his power. Titus writes of those inside the church, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. How do we know that we're really in the faith? Because we're not trusting in an event. We're not trusting in church attendance. We're not trusting in our family lineage. We're not trusting in our self-regard and our strength, but we're trusting in Christ alone. When we look at our Christian life, this is oftentimes a question people ask, how do I know? Well, look at your life. Do you see the work of God manifest in your life? Do you see yourself growing in holiness? Are you different now than you were before you professed faith? Do you see your desire and your, 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 um, your hope to grow in Christ growing day by day? There's not a set parameter by which we have to grow each day, but we should be growing in Christ. Sometimes we're growing faster in some seasons than we are in others, but we should see that continual pattern. I've always been told by many preachers, and I believe it to be the same, that if someone is deeply concerned about their walk in Christ, that's a good sign. Because people who are lost have no care about where they are in Christ. Many of those who have a false profession never even think about the fact of, am I truly in the faith? 
For those of us in this room who are truly Christians, we know that at moments we think about, okay, here's what the Scripture says. Paul says to test yourselves, to look at your faith, to see if you are in the faith. Examine your faith. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. What is happening in my Christian life? Am I seeing growth? Am I seeing fruit? Am I seeing development? There are those who trust in the fact that they just merely walked to the front of the church. Now, if you're here this morning and you walked to the front of the church when you became a Christian, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are people who, who trust not in the fact that they came to the front of the church and, and put their faith and trust in Christ. They're trusting just in the fact that they walked to the front of the church. There are those who trust in the fact that their families have been Christians. I've met people on the street, and I'm sure Brother Wes has as well, who you say, well, are you a Christian? You say, oh, yeah, I was born a Christian. My, my, my mother and my father were both Christians. I was, I was born a Christian. There are those who trust in their good deeds. They think because of the good service that they render towards their fellow man, that that is enough to, to give them eternal life. There are those who trust in their knowledge of the Scriptures. They believe that just because they know a lot about the Bible and who Christ is, that that will gain them salvation. But the Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble. They know what the Word of God says. They know who Jesus is. There are those who trust in religious service. If you study church history, there was a man by the name of uh, Benjamin Keach who was converted under his own preaching. His father was a pastor, and he desired to go into the ministry, and so he pursued the ministry, even though he had never truly been converted. And one time, as he was preaching the Word of God, he fell under conviction and came to faith as he actually stood in the pulpit and preached the Word of God himself. He thought his religious service was enough. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Ephesians tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul wants these believers to understand that they must be on guard against those who would come in and teach anything contrary to what the true gospel was. Paul was more clear in Galatians when he says, I'm concerned that you have so easily departed from the true gospel. He says, let anyone who teaches another gospel be anathema. It means be cursed, be damned to hell. So Paul says here with this idea of false teachers in mind, Paul wants to move to one particular group that was already beginning to plague the church at Philippi. So we've seen the joy of the Christian faith. We've seen the dedication and commitment of the apostle. I want you to now notice, thirdly, the false worship of the wicked. Look at verse 3. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. One of Paul's greatest concerns for the church at Philippi and for all the New Testament believers, in fact, was that they might fall prey to false teaching. Now here, Paul uses a threefold warning. You notice he uses that word beware three times. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. When we see that word, see a word used three times in the scripture, it's always an emphasis factor. He's wanting to point something out, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, whether it's any of the other writers, God himself. When we see that a word used three times in a row, it's pointing out there's something we need to pay careful attention here. Paul is issuing a warning that he does not want them to miss. In the fire service, they use a warning signal to warn firefighters inside of a building of dangers they cannot see. When a firefighter is in a structure fire, they're in the heat of the battle. They can't see what's happening on the outside of the structure. But oftentimes, depending upon the construction of the building, sometimes things change. 
And all of a sudden, the fire moves in a direction that it hadn't been before. And it may perhaps looks like the building is going to collapse or some other kind of danger that would endanger those men inside. The incident commander will call for the air horn on the truck to be blown three times. This loud horn will be blown in three consecutive blasts. And if you're a firefighter on the inside and you hear those three blasts, you know it's the time to get out. You don't delay. You don't think, well, let me think about this for just a minute. They, they don't understand. We're almost have this fire out in this spot. You know, we're almost to this point. We'll just, we'll just give it a few more moments and then we'll go. No, you hear those three blasts. You drop everything you're doing and you get out of the house. Why? Because a dead firefighter is, is a useless firefighter. You can't do anything to help. You can't do anything to solve if you're dead. And the same is true when it comes to false doctrine. It's nothing to be trifled with. When Paul here issues this warning to the church at Philippi, he's not saying, brothers and sisters, you know, if you see this, you know, dabble in it a little bit and it'll be okay. You can listen to what they have to say. No, he says, you must kill this right in its spot. This is why Paul is so adamant here. Beware, beware, beware. Throughout his ministry, Paul faced opposition most often from two groups, the Gnostics and the Judaizers. For the Philippian church, it was the dangerous influence of the Judaizers that they faced the most influence from. This group of individuals were a constant source of trouble for Paul. They insisted that in order for somebody to be saved and live the Christian life, that somebody must profess faith in Christ, but they must also continue to live under the works of the law. And one of their biggest insistences was that the Old Testament practice of circumcision was a necessary requirement for salvation. Paul never ceased to mince words when it came to such men like this. Second Corinthians, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And Paul doesn't hold back his anger and his words here because he says, beware of the dogs. Now, when we see this, we think about dogs as man's best friend, right? In the 21st century, we all have pets at home. We have teacup poodles or we have beagles have these dogs that we welcome into our homes that sit on our laps and we love them and we pet them and we take care of them, but these are not the dogs of Paul's day. The dogs of Paul's day were mangy, mean, filthy, diseased creatures who roamed the streets, barking at people, biting people, stealing food. These were not pets. These were not kind creatures. And it was a word to use to describe the lowest of the low. When you see it used in the scripture, it describes the lowest beings that were possible. And it's interesting because the Jewish leaders, those who, were, who held to these Jewish tendencies, often used that word as a derogatory term to describe the Gentiles. They would call them dogs because they hated them so much. But Paul takes this word that the Jews use so often to describe the Gentiles in a derogatory fashion, and he turns it back on them. He says, these are the dogs of the faith. This is a harsh word. It doesn't seem overly harsh to us, but in the time in which Paul lived, this would have been a very, very harsh word. It wouldn't pass over well in most circles today because they might say that the the apostle Paul is being too mean. But what parent among us in this room this morning would act kindly towards a venomous snake that was heading towards our child? You don't walk over there and say, now snake, listen. You know, I, I understand that, you know, you're just, a, you're just a creature and you're just looking for things. No, you walk over there and you either grab it or get something, and you knock it out of the way and you kill it because you understand the danger. Paul understood the danger that false teaching would have on the New Testament church. He understood what kind of destruction would come in 
if these men weren't deal, dealt with. Early church father Chrysostom called them these Jews. He said they were base and contemptible Jews, greedy of filthy lucre and fond of power, who desiring to draw away numbers of believers, preached at the same time both Christianity and Judaism, corrupting the gospel. Paul said you need to be aware that they're coming in as dogs, ravenous dogs who would desire to bite you and to bark at you and to attack you. But he also called them evil workers because these were church workers in a sense. They professed true faith. They carried themselves as faithful ministers, but at their heart, they were wickedly deceitful workers of iniquity. Titus says they profess to know God again, but they deny him by their deeds. It's very reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These Judaizers were convinced that they were being obedient to God, but they were adding something to the Christian faith. They were saying, it's not enough to just have faith in Christ alone. You must keep the law. You must be circumcised. You must follow after all these old tenets. They were unwilling to let go of what Jesus had set them free from. They wanted to add it back on top of the work of Christ. He said to beware of those who would attack you, beware of their evil deeds. And then he says to beware of the false circumcision. Now, we know the rite of circumcision was established by God in Genesis chapter 17. You can go back and read it there if you'd like later. But it was there that God told Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many nations. And he was going to establish a covenant with him and he would have everlasting descendants. And as a sign of that covenant, God said, you will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, that sign of circumcision was an outward sign. But more importantly, there was a work that was happening on the heart. It was an outward sign of what God was doing on the inside of the person. But the Judaizers were insisting that this act was still necessary for true salvation. They thought that the outward act was all that was necessary. They thought the outward act was all that was important. So they were guilty of adding to the work of Christ. What's so interesting is the word that Paul uses in verse 2. Now, in the New American Standard, it's translated as circumcision. But if you look at the original Greek word, It actually is not circumcision, but concision, which means to mutilate. And it was actually the word that was used to describe the pagan cuttings of the body, which were forbidden by the law. What Paul is saying, he says, they're attempting to follow this Old Testament practice, but they're not actually circumcising themselves. They're just mutilating themselves. Because the scripture teaches that circumcision is not that which is outward, but that which is inward. Circumcision is not about the cutting of the skin, more so as it is the cutting of the heart when God changes us on the inside. Scripture says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So these men were insisting that this is what people had to do. And Paul was so frustrated over this, so angry at this, that actually in Galatians, he says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He says, if just cutting the skin is enough to make you credit with God, he says, I wish they would just castrate themselves. Why not just go the whole measure and do the entirety of it in order that you might please God? Paul was pointing out the foolishness of their behavior. And he's warning these Christians to be on the lookout because there are going to be those who try to come in and corrupt the gospel of Christ. 
notice the false worship of the wicked. And finally, I want you to notice the true worship of believers. Because if Paul here is going to point out the false worship of the wicked, then how do we as believers truly worship? How do we carry out the fact of what God has called us to do? So notice there in verse three, he says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Firstly, we see who we are. We are the true circumcision. God had given this Old Testament right, not just as a sign of covenantal relationship, but intended to symbolize the inward circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then Romans 2, which we read earlier, but I want to read again. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So he says, we've been changed on the inside. Our hearts have been circumcised. They've been changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. And that's what makes the difference. It's not a physical act that we do to ourselves, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. We can't cause that to happen. It's something that God himself does. He says, this is who we are. We are the ones who have truly been changed by God. And he doesn't just tell us who we are, but he tells us how we worship. He says, who worship in the spirit of God. It was John Calvin who said by spiritual worship, he means that which is recommended to us in the gospel and consists of confidence in God an invocation of him, self-renunciation and a pure conscience. You remember in John chapter four, when Jesus met the woman at the well. And after he had told her to go call her husband and she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're correct for you've had five husbands and the one who you're with now is not your husband. The woman confessed, she said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that true worship is not about a particular location but true worship takes place in the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. How we are living out our life is an act of worship before God because Jesus says an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The word worship means to render respectful spiritual service. When we hear the word worship, we're often tended to think about a church service. We think about the music most often, but worship is the music, the songs that we sing. Worship is the preaching. Worship is the church service, but true worship goes beyond that. John MacArthur said, true worship goes beyond praising God, singing hymns, or participating in a worship service. The essence of worship is living a life of obedient service to God. So how do we worship God in spirit and in truth? We worship him by being obedient to him, by carrying out the commands that he has given to us in the scriptures. And true worship is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
because only He can manifest the needed fruit in our lives for true spiritual service to God. Spiritual worship is something that we must commit ourselves to doing in obedience to God, but He gives us the power and the strength to do it. One commentator said, true Christians are not simply marked by attending church or performing religious duties, but by a worshiping heart. You can come to church every Sunday. You can stand up and sing all the songs and be so far from truly worshiping God because it's about what is happening inside your heart. So we see how we worship, but we also need to see where we glory. Look at the second part, I mean, the third part of that. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. Glory is a boasting. It's a boasting with exultant joy about something that we're most proud of. Of the 37 times it appears in the New Testament, 35 of them are in Paul's writings. He loves to use this word talking about exalting and boasting in Christ. Because as believers, we understand we have nothing else to boast in. We have nothing else to claim. Paul's going to talk about this next week as we look at some of the remaining verses here. He says, all these things were gained to me. I counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul didn't boast in anything else but Christ. He didn't glory in any place else but Christ because he knew that he had nothing to offer. The scripture tells us, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And finally, at the end of that, we see not only where we glory, but we also need to understand where we do not trust. Paul says that as Christians, we are the ones of the true circumcision. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, but we put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers boasted in the works of the flesh. They boasted in their circumcision. They boasted in human accomplishment instead of faith alone in Christ alone. Paul is teaching them and us that the only boast that we have is in Christ and not in ourselves. I love the hymn that we often sing, All I Have is Christ. It says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. The only hope that we have the only boast that we have is all in Christ. Paul would point out in verse four, we'll see this next week. He says, if anybody could boast in the flesh, it would be me. He said, if anybody had the, the reason to boast, he said, I was the, notice what he says there, circumcised on the eighth day, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul said, if anyone could boast in the flesh, it would be me. He said, but it's all rubbish. It's all pointless. It's all worthless outside of Christ. No matter how great or powerful an individual might be, they have nothing to boast in. No amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of success is anything to trust in. We have nothing to put confidence in outside of Christ. All we have is Christ. Peter says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Brothers and sisters, we must live out our lives in Christian joy. We must live out our lives on guard against false teaching, and we must live out our lives in Christ-honoring worship. May God grant it to be so. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this instruction that Paul gives us. 
Lord, help us. Lord, no doubt in this room this morning, there are some of us who are struggling with joy. Lord, we have been walking through difficult seasons. We've been walking through hard times. And our emotions do not want to lead us to joy. But Father, help us to see that our emotions do not control our joy in you. And that when we look and we see that no matter how great our circumstances are, Father, that you have called us, chosen us, changed us, saved us, redeemed us unto yourself. And Lord, if you did nothing else for us, that would be worthy of all our praise, adoration, and glory for all of eternity. But Lord, you've done more than that. You've made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You've given us promises of heavenly blessings. You've promised us blessings here upon this earth. You guide us and you direct us and you keep us by your power and authority. Lord, help us to focus on who you are, to know the joy that comes from you. Lord, help us to live our lives on guard against false teaching, those things which would subtly sneak in by Satan and his dominion to cause us to question or to doubt, to cause us to veer away from where you've called us to be. And Father, help us to live our lives in honoring worship of you. Lord, not just in the songs that we sing, but by the life that we live. May we not just be Christians on Sunday when we're around our brothers and sisters in Christ, but may we be living on our faith every single day, both in public and in quiet. May we honor you and glorify you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.